welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I woke up with some L Fox today. Some L Fox? That sounds adorable, but I feel like it's probably not. Yeah, it's not like the fox animal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's matted locks of hair. Oh, that is far less cute and snuggly. Yeah, I was tossing and turning last night. Oh. You know, stress and, and anxiety and, and school and all of the things. I do know how that goes. Um, we just started a new term or semester, and Courtney and I were just going over our syllabi and what we have to do this semester term, whatever. Yes, which is a lot of things between yeah. the two of us. Yes, yeah, so um, anyways, that's that. And I don't know why I feel sleepy today, but I am. So Probably because you were tossing and turning all night. I know. I went to bed like hella early, though, but that's all right. Um, so just to give a precursor, uh, Courtney did again <laughs> write this one. And she told me, she informed me that I have some really long like spells of reading. So I'm going to try to go slow and measure because when I have several paragraphs in a row, that's when I tend to fumble my words. I will do my best, guys, to not fumble the words. Um, I think you'll do fine. You know, I try. I'm getting better, but I do tend to speak quickly when I should slow down. So, man, I'm listening to myself. I'm really boring. So, uh, (laughs) anyway. Well, we're... Coming back to our part two. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, take it away, Courtney. Earl Nelson, right? A.K.A. the gorilla killer um, or the gorilla man killer. Um, and so before we get into that, though, I've got hopefully not a hard question okay. today. I mean, I'm not brain dead. I'm just not feeling clever. That's okay. So, okay. Yes. Have at it. All right. So, Trisha, what was your, like, favorite go-to snack food when you were a kid Hmm. like the one that you're like this is what I want so it would probably be those toaster strudels do you remember those I may have eaten some of those in the last month yeah yeah they're probably still around they were better than a pop tart and my parents didn't get them very often but my friend Alana her parents always got them for so Ooh. We would hit that shit up. I love me a toaster pastry. I love Pop-Tarts, too. Same. I'm, yeah. But not the brown sugar ones. Oh, I love those ones. Really? Those are my favorite ones. Do you like Tootsie Rolls? Yeah, they're fine. I'm like, that's just the Halloween candy I wouldn't eat. No. <laughs> <laughs> the Pop-Tarts I won't eat. Do you like chili cheese um, Fritos? No, I don't. those were the ones I wouldn't <laughs> eat out of the snack packs. Um, what about you? I loved the snack Gushers. Oh, I remember those. Yeah, little like fruity candies yes. with like fruit gel mm-hmm. in the middle. Those were good. Uh, I could eat so many of those. And fruit by the foots. Mm, those were okay. I liked, I remember I, there was a, a he was Spanish, I believe. Spanish or French, it was a long time ago. He was an exchange student. And he was very afraid of many of the American foods, which I now understand why. At the right. time, I was like, what? Um, but I got him to try a fruit roll-up, and 
he did not care for it. <laughs> he tried it though, but he was like, I think it wasn't a fruit by the foot. It was a fruit roll up. So it was a super waxy. Yeah. The more plastic yeah, one. You kind of have to rip it with your teeth, mm-hmm. which I also find delicious, but he found very weird and plastic tasting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So Yusuf, um, if you listen to us, which I doubt you do, um, that was me. Gave you a fruit roll up when we were freshmen in the United States. So nice, yeah, yeah. And I just remember. Do you remember the terrible Gushers commercials where like the kids would eat it and then their head would turn into a fruit? Yeah, yeah. That was real creepy. It's it's kind of fun to watch old commercials. It is. I mean, you weren't really around the '80s, but the '80s had some great ones um, as well. And when I watch them, it's weird how it like transcends you in time takes you right back takes you right back yeah i don't really watch commercials much anymore because i don't watch live tv very much anymore same so for sports right and they have very kind of specific commercials yeah a lot of times they're sports commercials right yeah so well that was a fun question right nostalgia lane exactly Um, so what was the name of the book we're using again the name of the book is um, Bestial. Bestial. And then there is a subtitle. I think the true story of a true American monster. Okay. Something like that. Um, do you want to recap for us? Yes. Okay. I'll do a quick recap from last week. So we learned that Earl Nelson was born around the turn of the century. Both of his parents died of syphilis when he was a baby. And he was raised by his strict and religious grandmother. Earl suffered several major illnesses and head injuries as a child and displayed very odd and aggressive behaviors from a pretty young age, including hallucinations. After his grandma died when he was 14, he started struggling with drinking, fighting, and his mental health just kept getting worse and worse. And he ended up in prison and then at the state hospital. And after being kicked out by his eventual wife, he attacked a young girl and found himself back at the hospital after having a psychotic break. So we left off in early 1925 with Earl having been released from the Napa State Mental Hospital where he spent about three years after assaulting that girl that Courtney just talked about. He was home with his wife just a few weeks before he felt the urge to wander and he left. It wasn't long before his violent tendencies led to murder for the first time. And in San Francisco, it was February 20th, 1926, Earl knocked on the door of a boarding house that had a room for rent sign in the window. The boarding house was run by a 62-year-old widow named Clara Newman. Earl was dressed nicely and politely asked about the open room. Clara invited Earl inside to show him the room. After a while, Clara's nephew, Merton, came down from the apartment he rented upstairs in the home and saw Earl opening the front door to leave leave he asked earl what he was doing and earl responded by saying that he wanted to rent the room and to tell the landlady that he would be back in an hour well a few more hours passed and merton realized that he had not seen or heard from his aunt clara and neither had any of the other boarders they began searching the house and soon found clara's body in the vacant room lying on the floor with her skirt bunched up around her hips she had been strangled to death by somebody's bare hands and then sexually assaulted after she died The police were called to investigate, but there was not much to go off of, as Merton had not gotten a good look at the man who had come to inquire about the room. Courtney, if this is his first murder, um, or do you think it is his first murder, and what do you think made him finally act on this impulse? 
I would not be surprised if this were not actually Earl's first murder, but it is the first that we know of, and it's definitely the first that kind of sets this pattern in motion. Um, so with his level of aggression and strength, I can imagine that he may have, you know, maybe killed someone unintentionally prior to this, like in a bar fight or something similar, um, which may have sort of ignited that urge to kill. And then I also believe that his attack on little Mary, so the young girl from earlier, um, which led to his hospitalization, was probably his first attempt at intentional rape and murder. Um, he did try to strangle her, um, but she survived. So he then had three years to fantasize about that event and to think about what he could do differently to be more successful next time. Well, two weeks later, on March 2nd, Earl made his way to the city of San Jose and, in, and again inquired about a room for rent, for rent at a boarding house. This time... Oops, no, I went too far. Sorry. Uh, oh, here we go. Shoot. Gosh darn it. Okay, this time the boarding house was managed by an elderly woman, Laura Beale, and her husband. When Mr. Beale got home from work, he was surprised to find his wife missing. He and the boarders in the home searched the house and found Laura's body in the vacant room, also with her dress pushed up around her waist. She had been strangled using the belt of her robe, which had been pulled so tight that it broke the skin on her neck. She had also been sexually assaulted after she died. Okay, so we're seeing a pattern emerging here. It looks like his victim type is elderly women, maybe mother figures. What do you think? Also, strangulation is very personal. Any thoughts on this, especially if he is having psychotic episodes? So there's definitely a clear pattern from the very beginning with Earl. Earl is targeting women who honestly resemble his grandmother and his ex-wife, who, if we remember, was in her 60s when... They married when he was in his 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, his, his victims were essentially surrogates for the women he was actually angry with, but couldn't actually kill. So his grandma, who was already dead, and for whatever reason, he did not kill his ex-wife, but yeah. good for her. Right. <laughs> but because they're surrogates, that makes every murder personal. So strangulation kind of makes sense as a chosen method. In terms of how his mental health and history of psychosis play into things, it's possible that Earl was experiencing what's called command hallucinations, telling him to kill, so voices in his mind telling him to kill. Um, However, his behavior is pretty well thought out Mm -hmm. and intentional and organized, which leads me to think that he was actually pretty lucid and not experiencing a psychotic episode when he started his killing spree. So he could not have been found not guilty by reason of insanity? Not for these first two murders, anyway. Okay. Now, with two very similar murders having occurred, the press and people of the Bear area couldn't stop talking about the, quote, dark strangler. Tips came pouring in, but nothing pointed to Earl or anyone else as the perpetrator. After about a month with no leads, the number of newspaper articles faded to zero, and life seemed to return to normal. Then one source says it was March 28th, and another source says it was June 26th, when the dark strangler struck again. He had already developed a signature, finding his victims by looking at the classified ads for rooms for rent. This time, Earl's victim was 63-year-old Lillian St. Mary. One of Lillian's established boarders noticed the open door to the vacant room and peeked inside. There, he saw Lillian lying on the bed, 
clothing torn and pushed up around her waist, with bloodshot eyes and legs splayed open. He could tell that she was dead and called the police. Lillian had been strangled to death by a person's bare hands while the person had sat with their full weight on her chest, and she had been raped after being killed. No witnesses had seen the man who entered and exited the building, but a streetcar driver reported a man acting strangely, in quotation marks, in the area that afternoon. Police out on a public or police put out a public warning, advising women to beware of posting about rooms for rent and allowing unknown men, men into their homes. Courtney, can you give us a refresher on necrophilia? It's been a little while since we've gone over that, but obviously it's part of Earl's signature. Sure. So necrophilia is what's considered a paraphilic disorder um, or a sexual disorder in which a person experiences intense sexual arousal in response to fantasies or sexual behavior involving the dead body of another person. Um, In Earl's case, I think there's also an element of some sexual sadism involved where he was especially aroused by the act of killing his victim before having sex with their body. Do you think the ultimate goal was to have sex with their dead body? Like the killing was just a means to the end? I don't think so. I Mm -hmm. think it was sort of a package deal. Okay. Feeling the heat in San Francisco, Earl moved south 320 miles to Santa Barbara. In early July, Earl used the same ruse of warning to look wanting to look at a room for rent to enter the boarding house owned by Mrs. Ollie Russell. One of Ollie's boarders was a man named William Franny, who worked nights and was home sleeping during the day when he was awakened by the sound of banging noises in the room next to his, which was supposed to be empty. Franny told the police that he peeked peeked through the keyhole into the room and saw a large man with his pants pulled down, thrusting against a female partner. He then backed away, embarrassed, and waited until he heard the man leave the room and exit the front door before before investigating further. He peeked in again and saw that the woman had not moved or made a sound, looked like Ollie Russell, and that there was blood on the blanket. Franny left to find Mr. Russell at his work, to come back and unlock the door, where they then confirmed that Ollie was the woman on the bed and that she was indeed dead. She had been beaten, strangled with a cord, and sexually assaulted after her death. Another thing I'm noticing is that he's not really being very careful. He is attacking women in boarding houses, oftentimes with others at home. Do you have anything you want to comment about that? I think this might speak to Earl's impulsivity, and his more childlike cognitive abilities um, related to his head injuries. Mm -hmm. You know, he was visiting these boarding houses during the daytime when he may have believed other tenants were likely to be out of the house due to going to work or other activities. So it may not have occurred to him to check if other people were home at this time. But then also, once his plan was in motion... He may have experienced too strong of an impulse to stop himself from then finishing the job. What we read about is like, I was it, I can't remember if it was Ted Bundy. I want to say it was Ted Bundy, but I could be wrong. Um, they asked him, you know, does like the death penalty have any sort of work into your mind when you're committing these crimes that this could happen to you? And he was like, no. That's like it. That's not in your mind at all. All you have on your mind at that moment is what's in front of you and what you're doing, and nothing else, including consequences, enters it. Right. So, like Earl, if he's set on doing this and he's going in there and he finds a victim, like nothing's going to really stop him from doing it. Right. He's just going to keep going. It's like blinders. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So Earl finished out the summer of 1926 in Oakland, where he murdered and sexually assaulted 52-year-old Mary Nesbitt on August 16th. Luckily, for at least some landladies, Earl took the month of September off from killing, although his re- this relief was short-lived. He made his way up to Portland, Oregon, and murdered three women, Beta Withers, Virginia Grant, and Mabel Fluke, on three consecutive days in October. That's a lot in a short period of time. It is. Yep. Three in three days. Yeah. He was on the road again in November, killing Anna Edmonds in San Francisco on November 18th, and Florence Monks in Seattle on November 23rd. Blanche Myers in Portland on November 29th. All of the women were middle-aged or elderly and ran boarding houses. Um, All of the women had been strangled and raped after death. He also started stealing from his victims and would pawn jewelry or other items to get by. Okay, so another deviation we're seeing from other serial murders is his geographical area. He has expanded his hunting ground from Seattle all the way down to California. We don't see that very often, I mean, although it does occur. Yes, so one of the things that separates Earl from other killers that we've talked about is that he didn't really have a solid home base that he was working from. Mm -hmm. He didn't have a steady job, relationships, children, or friends, really. So it was easy for him to wander wherever the wind took him. Other killers with very clear hunting grounds usually have something that ties them to a specific area. What did they... Say in the first episode, he had, like, wander. Oh, it was um, nomadic dementia. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting um, thing. (laughs) Yeah, just an interesting turn of phrase. Yeah. His wanderlust then called Earl to move east, hitchhiking or stowing away on trains as he made his way across the country. His urges to kill went with him, and he left a trail of bodies on his trip. On December 23rd, Earl killed 41-year-old Elmira Berard in her home in Council Bluffs, Iowa. She was found strangled, with a shirt still around her neck. Because she had recently been released from a mental hospital, police initially thought she had died by suicide, but ruled that out when they found the evidence that she had been raped. Four days later, in Kansas City, Missouri, 23-year-old Bonnie Pace was found strangled and raped in her home. The next day, December 28th, Germaina Harpin's husband returned home to find his wife and eight-month-old son, Robert, dead. Both had been strangled, and Germania had been sexually assaulted after death. What's happening? Is he getting bolder by having younger victims? Perhaps he wasn't fixated on the elderly at all. Perhaps it was just that they were more vulnerable than the younger victims. My theory is that while traveling, there were longer time periods between his clusters of murders, and as a result, the urges to kill became even more intense. And so my guess is that he was killing victims of convenience instead of holding out for his victim type. So you think his vict- his ideal victim still would have been an older woman? Yes. Okay. As he traveled further east, his chosen victims did not always fit his original victimology. This, along with the distance, made it difficult for police departments to connect all of the crimes. By the end of 1926, Earl had murdered 14 women and one infant, and police were nowhere close to catching him. There are no known victims during the months of January through March in 1927, but Earl was back to his old tricks by April. On April 27th, Earl was in Philadelphia and murdered 53-year-old boarding house landlady Mary McConnell and stole several pieces of jewelry that he tried to pawn. By the end of May, he was in Buffalo, New York, where he rented a room under a false name from 53-year-old Jenny Randolph. Three days later, her body was found, strangled, and sexually assaulted. 
This time, since he'd been there for a few days, two men who lived in the home were able to give police descriptions of Earl and later identified him as the man they knew by a different name. Boarding house manager Fannie Mae and her tenant Maureen Arthur, Arthur, I think, yeah, were found murdered on June 1st in Detroit. Both had been strangled using a cord cut from a lamp in the room. Investigators found that electrical current was still running in the cord when it was cut, meaning that the knife used would likely have a chipped and burned part on the blade. Two days later in Chicago, Earl strangled Mary Sitzma with an electrical cord in her home. So it was now 18 months into um, Earl's murder spree, and he had killed 20 victims all across the United States. So what is a serial killer's next move? Go to Canada, our friendly neighbors to the north. In June 27, or in June 1927, Earl crossed the border into Canada and ended up in Winnipeg, renting a room at a house in a quiet neighborhood run by a woman named Catherine Hill. On June 8th, Earl encountered 14-year-old Lola Cowan on the street where she was selling paper flowers. He somehow got her to come back to his room where he strangled and raped her before leaving the house and never returning. Her body was not discovered until four days later. Two days later after that, Earl happened upon Emily Patterson. Somehow um, made it into the house, and then he killed and raped her before hiding her body under her son's bed, where she was later found by her husband, William. Thank God it wasn't her son. Over the next few days, there were reports of Earl wandering around town, flashing a large amount of cash at a clothing store and barber shop, and talking to strangers about his alcoholism. This money, along with jewelry, had been stolen from the Patterson home. However, Earl made a mistake and left behind a knife with nicks and burn marks on the blade. Dun, dun, dun. Now that the police in Winnipeg... um, Oh, sorry. Now... The police in Winnipeg were not messing around. They were aware of the dark strangler. They had been, um, that had been terrorizing their neighbor to the south and immediately got to work investigating the murders of Emily and Lola. Earl, who was using the name Mr. Woodcoats, stuck out as a foreigner in the small city and was recognized by a jeweler who he had tried to sell stolen goods to and a barber when they were shown his picture later. Several tips came in when the police offered a $1,500 reward for information that led to his capture. I googled that amount, and it'd be about $27,000 today. Police also figured that this, um, that this killer would try to return to the U.S. and sent his description to every border town on both sides of the border. On June 14th, Earl, using the name Mike Mouski, was arrested at the Minnesota-Manitoba border, but escaped the next day. On June 16th, Earl, a.k.a. Virgil Wilson, was arrested in a small town north near North Dakota, Manitoba border, but was also able to escape that same evening. Um, I guess he must have been a good escape artist as well. I mean, escape was one of his talents for sure. He did escape from the psychiatric hospital on four separate occasions and managed to evade identification and arrest for a year and a half of serial killing. I wonder, I mean, it's... It's old, so we don't know why it was so easy for him to escape. Like, did they just, did he look like he, you know, I don't know, easy to handle? Like, so I did actually, this last escape, they did have some details about mm-hmm. it in the book um, that said that while like his like shoelaces and all those things were removed, he managed to like break a wire off of the bed, mm-hmm. like that was holding up his little mattress and used it to pick the lock. Oh. Okay, so 
lock picking is a talent he has. Yep. Well, fortunately, Earl made the mistake of choosing to catch a train that happened to be transporting a bunch of Winnipeg police officers. <laughs> Just bad luck for him. And he was arrested less than 12 hours later when the train arrived at the next stop. He was taken back to Winnipeg where he was photographed, fingerprinted, and booked into jail as Virgil Wilson. He was positively identified during a lineup by witnesses in the city. His fingerprints were found to match those found at several crime scenes, and his dental impressions matched bite marks that were found on several victims. His photograph was sent to all the major precincts in the U.S. where suspected dark strangler murders had occurred, and he was identified by witnesses in multiple cities. And eventually, the San Francisco Police Department was able to correctly identify him as Earl Nelson. Now, at the time of his arrest, Earl was linked to 22 murders and wanted in six states, but was held in Winnipeg to face a trial for the murders of Emily Patterson and Lola Cohen. Cowan. He was officially charged with two counts of murder, two counts of attempted molestation, and one count of burglary. He initially admitted to his crime, saying, quote, I only do my lady killings on Saturday nights, but then he recanted and refused to cooperate with detectives. This was a huge case, and there was quite the media circus. Over 400 people turned up at the jail and courthouse when he was being transferred, trying to get a glimpse of him. Photos of his uniquely large hands, along with the salacious details of his crime, were printed in every newspaper, contributing to the nickname of Gorilla Killer, and that seemed to stick. So it was primarily because of his hands? It was a big part because of his hands, and then just like the brute strength that it takes to strangle someone manually was he hairy did Um, you see pictures of him he was not particularly hairy but he was kind of dark complexion okay earl's trial began on november 1st 1927 the prosecution had a ton of evidence and witnesses that were pretty solid the defense tried to claim that earl was insane and therefore not culpable Earl's ex-wife Mary Martin and his aunt Lillian both testified to his childlike mental state and mental illness, but a psychiatrist who evaluated him testified that he was competent to stand trial. Um, And we might have gone over this before, but just because I went over this in my class a lot last term, the difference between competency to stand trial and not guilty by reason of insanity um, is very different competency to stand trial is being competent at the time of the trial to understand charges against you not guilty by reason of insanity plea is um being quote unquote insane at the time of the crime so in the past so it is easier to determine competence to stand trial because it's happening right now Mm -hmm. than to determine if someone was insane in the past so they're two different things and it's a lot easier for the the competency thing to be figured out than the NGRI. Um, So anyways, they found him competent to stand trial. The trial concluded on November 5th, 1927, and was sent to the jury. The jury deliberated for only 40 minutes. It's got to be like a record. It's pretty quick. (laughs) Before finding Earl guilty on both murders, which came with a mandatory death sentence. Wow, I'm blown away. Canada has death sentence? I mean, they did in the 1920s. I don't think they do anymore. Yeah, I'm just like thinking like American or... They're American, mm-hmm. North, whatever. United States was one of the only Western countries with death sentences. So. Yeah, I think kind of at the turn of the century, a lot more places still had the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And it uh, faded out, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's surprising. 
Earl's lawyer filed an appeal asking for clemency and claiming that Earl's mental illnesses were not accurately portrayed during the trial. This appeal was denied. Earl was executed by hanging on January 13th, 1928. So they didn't even send him to the U.S. for those trials? Nope. No one wanted to pay the money to extradite him and have those cases closed officially? I think they did close them, but officially, like, they figured, well, he's being executed, so we're going to do the same thing here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This seems kind of weird that the U.S. didn't, I mean, I I guess they just thought it was a waste of money. Probably. You know, maybe if they had found him not guilty, they would have extradited him to the U.S. I'm sure they would have, yeah. Or if maybe the punishment was, like, life in prison Mm -hmm. and the U.S. wanted to give him the death penalty, then they maybe would have extradited. Yeah. But all around, he got the same punishment he would have gotten in the U.S. Yeah. While Earl was only officially tried and convicted of two murders, he was officially linked to 22 murders and suspected of an additional seven. Courtney, my main question at this point is, do you think he was insane at the time of the murders? Should he have been found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a mental hospital based on what we know of this mental state? Or do you think this was the correct verdict and punishment? You know, this really is the million dollar question here. Because there is no doubt that Earl experienced mental illness in his life. You know, we didn't talk too much about his diagnosis today, but last week I explained my theory that Earl had schizoaffective disorder, where he experienced bipolar mood episodes in addition to psychotic symptoms. And so I think it's possible that, you know, Earl was experiencing a manic episode during the time of his murder spree. Because during manic episodes, people can be more impulsive, aggressive, can be very hypersexual and grandiose. Um, and all those factors could have, you know, made it easier for Earl to act on his homicidal urges. There would have been less inhibition holding him back. Um, however, as I also mentioned kind of earlier in the beginning, um, Earl's actions during the murders displayed organization and premeditation and that he was able to plan ahead with his ruse, made attempts to disguise himself, used fake names, and in some cases made attempts to hide the bodies. So Earl may have been mentally ill, but I don't think that he was insane when he murdered 22 people. Yeah, he knew what he did was wrong. He split from the crime scene. Yes. Sometimes put people under the bed, like you said. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, he didn't just like murder and then hang out. Because he didn't realize what he did was wrong. Right. He knew, yeah, that what he was doing was wrong. And he planned ahead. Yeah. And he didn't proclaim he did it because God told him to or something like that. Right. He didn't claim to be having command hallucinations or anything. Yeah. Well, that's the end of Earl the Gorilla Man killer, Nelson. Yes. An interesting 1920s um, era serial killer. Yeah, one that I'm surprised that more people haven't heard about given the nature of his crimes and how two many con- people he Two killed. countries were involved. Yep, two countries. I wonder if... 22 if, victims. I mean, I don't know if Canada has a whole lot of serial killers that they've executed. Um, so maybe, like, Canadian population knows about this case more than the U.S. Maybe. Because we have so many. We do. It's hard to keep track of them all. <laughs> but I don't. So I doubt our, that they do. To our Canadian listeners, yeah. Have, have you heard of this guy before? Is yeah. he part of Canadian legend? Yeah. Is he part of the true crime universe in Canada? Because if so, um, we haven't done this for a while. Please let us know. Our 
Gmail is addicted to murder podcast at gmail.com. Our Instagram is at addicted to M and the rest of the socials are at it's addicted to M podcast. Dang it. At addicted to M podcast. And the rest of the socials are at addicted to murder podcast. Yes. Um, so, you know, that would be cool if anyone that's actually listening would let us know if they had heard of this guy who, who lives or is from Canada. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. so our next case, Trisha, it's you. Ugh, Anything you want to say case, about it? This next case makes my tummy hurt. I really, I put this guy off for a long time because he's just a piece of shit. And um, he's American. <laughs> As they mostly are. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this one is a very sadistic, messed up, awful awful it's it's sadistic in all caps yes and it's it was hard to read i skipped a lot of the book because i couldn't um read the detail so and we won't be sharing all of the detail with you either so if you're like i can't listen to this one it'll be okay no and um actually a lot of the detail is in his own words it's not because of um bodies that were found right it was his Mm -hmm. words sort of like um Oh, what was his name? The one that like was super delusional. So maybe half of the things that he said he did were f- um, not true. The one that said he killed all those people when he was in Vietnam or Korea. Oh, was that Arthur Shawcross? Yes, Arthur Shawcross. It was a similar sick mm. feeling <laughs> reading those two. But anyhow, that's who we're doing next week or the week after, depending on um, schoolwork. Right. And how overwhelmed we get this week. Yeah. Uh, but Courtney, in the meantime, what do you do with a man with giant hands asked to rent a room in your house? Go nuts, go home and lock the door, and then go to therapy. Sounds good to me. All right, everyone. Stay safe. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.